It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 23rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, state lawmakers are convening at the Capitol today to settle unfinished business. It's a clear function of government to maintain roads and bridges. There's just no reason for it not to get done. We in the House are going to do our part, and uh, we'll see what happens. But I, I, in, in the discussions we've had, we're confident it'll happen. Then in our book club, Margaret Hagerman zeroes in on affluent white children to observe how they make sense of privilege, unequal educational opportunities, and police violence in the U.S. And we'll learn about preventing sports injuries this fall season. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State lawmakers are heading back to the Capitol today to settle on a plan they hope will meet Mississippi's infrastructure needs. Governor Phil Bryant supports a plan to use funds from Internet sales taxes, sports betting, electric and hybrid vehicle user fees, and a state lottery to improve transportation. Speaker of the House Philip Gunn tells MPB's Ashley Norwood he's eager for an infrastructure solution, but he does not support a lottery. Well, I've been very vocal in my opposition to the lottery, primarily because it's bad public policy. And I have done a lot of research on it and uh, concluded that just from a public policy standpoint, it's not good. I have challenged those who are proposing the lottery to bring forward a reputable economist who will stand up and say that it's good public policy. And not only they have not brought me a reputable economist, they have not produced a disreputable economist to say anything. So it's just a, based upon my own study of the issue, uh, economics, is it good, is it not? I, I have concluded it is bad public policy. It is not going to help our state. Um, I have prided what we have done over the last seven years because we've passed good policy. We've done things that have improved the state, helped the state, moved the state forward. And I think for the first time, this is something that is not going to help the state and, in fact, hurts some of its citizens. So for those reasons, I have a, a, a very vocal opponent to it. I do believe I'm in the minority on that. So we'll see where it goes. I don't know if the votes exist uh, just yet, but uh, I've, I've said that I'm going to be against it personally. Who are the people you say it'll hurt? Affect? Well, uh, the, the studies are overwhelming that it hurts the poor. And in Mississippi, we have a large number of those. It is a regressive tax. Uh, This is borne out by numerous studies and economists who have come forward and shown study after study shows that it is a tax. It is a regressive tax. It falls primarily on the poor. And uh, you're going to hurt a lot of people by doing this. Gunn says debate over the lottery would or could cause delays in how the session progresses. Those who are pushing the lottery believe it's going to produce 70 to 80 million. The information we have that we gathered in our study is closer to 40. I'm hearing uh, a lot of discussions about different ideas about what to do with the money, even if the lottery passes. Well, first of all, you have to to assume that the bill is going to be a good one. Uh, There are people who are for a lottery, but they're not for a a, a bad lottery bill. So whatever the, the Senate may pass... If it's not a good bill, that's going to be problematic, in addition to being able to get to the votes. But also hear that there are a lot of people who want to offer amendments of different ideas about where that money should go. The plan that I understand is going to be passed is to dedicate that money to roads and bridges for a period of 10 years. But there are other people, I think, who probably want to offer amendments to put it towards whatever their favorite issue 
or expenditure is. And so there may be a series of amendments that have to be debated, and we'll just deal with it. Is there something left off the call that you wish would be up for discussion in the special session? Not that I recall. We were in close communications with the governor's office. We agreed that the road and bridge issue is the main purpose of the special session. The governor has often said he would not call a special session just for the lottery or just for BP. Since we're here, he's going to add those things. But the, the road and bridge issue is the main reason why we're coming down here to address that problem. Speaker Gunn says other measures should be used to fund transportation. We're bringing forward a bill, uh, what we call House Bill 722. It was House Bill 722 last regular session. We passed it about the third week of the session. That is the foundation of what we are doing. The House of Representatives is going to pass our bill, which takes some of the use tax, which is money we've already got, and dedicates it to roads and bridges. And we're going to divide it among the cities and the counties and the bridge program, and that is going to provide an ongoing stream of revenue moving forward to fund our roads and bridge problem. We think it's solid policy. It is. Uh, it passed the House of Representatives 118 to nothing last session. I anticipate a similar level of support this time. House Speaker Philip Gunn says their plan would provide 120 to 130 million annually. Senate Democrat Deborah Dawkins of Pass Christian tells MPB's Ashley Norwood she would support a lottery but has concerns about the future of education funds. The roads and bridges, of course, everyone is for rehabbing what we've already got. We just have to see how they want to fund it. And I'm open to a lot of things. I'm not open to taking any money from education, which sounds like maybe something they want to put on the table. Why do you think they may want to put that on the table specifically? There's a lot of money that goes towards education, they say. Not near enough, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of my colleagues, but um, I think there are people in this building that see it as a revenue stream that can be diverted. Um, Legally, we're committed to spending so much on education, and we haven't even met that. So I would just say that that revenue stream is not up for uh, argument, in my opinion. But we don't have a bill yet, so we don't know. They may have some new ingenious idea of how to uh, fund these proposals. But yesterday, some of us met with the lieutenant governor, and so far nothing sounds new or innovative to me at this point. As for the lottery, people in Mississippi have wanted it for a long time, at least my constituents. Of course, I come from the coast, so, you know, we we are a little different breed of cat down there. But um, I'm, you know, going to support any effort to create a lottery. And where the revenue stream goes, personally, I would prefer it go to education. But if part of getting it is putting the money in roads and bridges, I guess I'd be okay with that. I know some legislators feel that the special session may or may not last just two days. Um, Do you think you can get it done in two days? Well, there's no substitute for being in the halls of the Capitol to find out what is happening from moment to moment. Uh, Monday, it looked like we would be here for a week. Yesterday, it looked like um, longer than two days. But now, today, I'm hearing, no, they've come closer. The House and the Senate have come closer together and that um, we might be able to wrap it up in a couple of days. Really, you know, 
whatever it takes to get the job done right is, in my opinion, the way to go if we have to be here for an extended period of time. So um, we'll see what happens. We do need to get something done for people in Mississippi. All right. If, unless there's something else you want to add, Senator Dawkins? Even though these two items are the main items on the call right now, the governor can expand the call at any time. Now, as of this morning, it didn't sound like um, he would or that he plans to, but you never know what will come out of the session, and we have some other really critical issues. Senator Deborah Dawkins, District 48 of Harrison County, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. Asked about the slim chance that no agreement is achieved, Speaker Gunn says it's not likely. It's a clear function of government to maintain roads and bridges. There's just no reason for it not to get done. We in the House are going to do our part, and uh, we'll see what happens. But I, I, in, in the discussions we've had, we're confident it'll happen. In other news, Mississippi's second largest school district says it wants to hire an Oklahoma administrator at its next, as its next superintendent. The Jackson Public School Board of Trustees is concluding their search for superintendent with the appointment of Eric Green. Board Vice President Ed Sivak says Green was the top pick for a few reasons. The appointment of Dr. Green concludes a search that engaged roughly a thousand different people from across the district. This includes parents and students, community leaders, teachers, principals, and district staff. And throughout that process, you know, many of the stakeholders articulated a clear preference for a leader with deep experience in urban districts that were larger or experiencing similar challenges to Jackson Public Schools, and a person who also had a track record of engaging in community of being able to communicate and connect with a diverse group of stakeholders. And as we concluded our search, it was clear that Dr. Green was clearly our top candidate and met all of those criteria. Green currently serves as the chief of schools in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Before Green signs a contract, the board is asking the Mississippi Department of Education to issue him an administrator's license. He's expected to begin on or before October 1st. Coming up, a new perspective on racial socialization in the U.S. in our book club, White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPB Watch Us Shine brings together some of your favorite MPB radio and TV stars. Join Walt Grayson, Deborah Hunter, Wyatt Waters, Robert St. John, Marshall Ramsey, Bill Ellison, and Felder Rushing for a magical evening of never-before-seen footage and remarkable gems from our vault. It's a night of star-studded entertainment, major announcements, and a chance to win fabulous prizes. MPB Watch Us Shine premieres Thursday, August 23rd at 7 p.m. on MPB TV. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In today's book club, meet author and assistant professor of sociology, Margaret Hagerman. The Mississippi State University's researcher's new book is entitled White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. It explores how affluent white children and youth come to understand race, racism, privilege, and inequality in the United States in the context of their families. Hagerman's research focuses on how forms of racism are socially reproduced, reworked, and resisted by 
young people. Her work can be found in academic journals, including the Journal of Marriage and Family, the Sociological Studies of Children and Youth, and in this, her new book. She tells us how the book started as a study. So this book is based on a two-year research study that I conducted between the years of 2011 and 2013. I moved to this community that I studied, and I interviewed children and their parents. I observed them in their everyday lives, and I really tried to immerse myself in their community. I also went back and re-interviewed a selection of these families uh, a few years later, so the kids were in high school. The focus is on the kids and their beliefs. You said you went back when they were in high school. How old were they when you started? So initially, they were between the ages of um, 10 and 13. So this book comes down to how privileged young people see race. How do you define privileged? The interesting thing about this book is that the kids are experiencing both economic privilege, meaning that their parents have high levels of education, they have occupations that pay a lot of money, they live in highly valued single-family homes and so forth, but they're also experiencing racial privilege. And so what I mean by that is really looking at data on race. And what we know is that across every conceivable measure, white people have advantages in our society over people of color. So time and time again, social scientists find that being white in America basically means that you get advantages, you get the benefit of the doubt, you get treated better. That's what I mean when I say white privilege. Of the people you studied, did those individuals see themselves as privileged? What I found is actually a real big range. Some of the families rejected the idea of white privilege, and they told me that they don't think that that's real, and they were raising their children with that sort of idea. And then there were other families who were really engaged in sort of talking to their kids about what they saw as a continued racial inequality in America and sort of trying to help their white children navigate being white in that context. What I think is maybe my favorite part of the book is that I actually have the voices of the kids. And so you can kind of see, depending upon these different approaches to parenting, the difference in outcomes in terms of the ideas that the kids actually have. Was there a difference in ideas if some kids were integrated with minorities, where they came into contact on a daily basis with people of color, as opposed to those who maybe didn't? Absolutely. And I think that there's a whole long history of research on Um, It kind of gets referred to as contact theory, but, you know, this whole notion that um, if we can have kids interact with each other across the racial line, then maybe that will lead to a reduction in prejudice or discrimination and so forth. And I saw some of that play out, actually, in the kids in my book. The children that attended a more racially integrated school, they had meaningful relationships with kids of color. They went to their homes. They cared about them and so forth. In some cases, that actually led to greater empathy and taking their friend's side when things happened at school. Um, On the other hand, you know, when you have an integrated space, that means that sometimes some of the conflicts that are going on outside the school can come into the school along racial lines. Did you talk to the parents enough to find out if what they believed was directly passed on to their child? That was one of my main questions. And what I found is that sometimes the kids had similar ideas to their parents, But what was more interesting were moments when children actually challenged their parents, and it kind of worked in two different ways. On the one hand, the children would come home from school and say something racist, and their parents would be horrified and they'd have a whole discussion about it. In other cases, the parents would say something or do something that the child perceived to be problematic or racist, and, and then the child would call the parent out. So I think it's actually more complicated than this notion that kids just mimic their parents' positions. I think children have agency, and they are interpreting the social environment around them beyond just what their parents say. 
Did you find that politics influenced how an individual felt about race? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I conducted this study, there was a lot of political conflict going on in this particular community. And so that certainly came out in my study, and people were very open with me in talking about their politics. Were there across-the-board similarities? Well, you know, I think that the most important lesson that my book sort of demonstrates is that white parents often think that it's what they say to their children about race that really matters. And so, for example, in the aftermath of racist hate crimes, I often see sort of a spike in in op-eds and other things that are written that are sort of, you know, how to talk to your white kids about race, like the importance of talking about, about race with white children. And while I think that's all really great and that's the first step, I think that what my book shows ultimately becomes more important is what parents do and how they set up their child's life. So as you mentioned earlier, when you opt into an integrated public school versus a predominantly white private school, that has different consequences for what your child is then going to learn about race. And the same is true for neighborhoods, what friendships you encourage or discourage, the kinds of media that you consume. And so I think it's a much bigger picture than just what you say about race. So I think that would be the ultimate finding that, that that's important. Margaret A. Hagerman is assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State University, and her book is called White Kids, Growing Up with Privileges in a Racially Divided America. Margaret, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Coming up, we'll learn about preventing sports injuries this fall season. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On MPB Season Pass, we love to bring you interesting interviews with athletes that you haven't heard before. We'll speak with Mississippi Hall of Fame and Ole Miss Hall of Fame member Mike Dennis. We also have interviews with athletes you haven't heard of before. We'll speak with U.S. Transplant Games multi-medal winner Timothy Lewis about his recent accomplishments in Salt Lake City. MPB Season Pass, today at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio and on the Internet at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If it's fall in Mississippi, it's the season for sports-related injuries. University of Mississippi Medical Center's Dr. Jim Hurt joins us this morning to talk about athlete injuries and how they'll stay safe this year. The athletes, that is. Good morning, Dr. Hurt. Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right. You already told me off air that the injuries, the visits from high schoolers has ticked up. Oh, absolutely. Business is good where you are. Well, it's, I guess... It's busy. That's for sure. Right. We never want to see kids get hurt, but they do, you know, and and more kids are playing sports now than they've ever played before. Over 30 million kids nationwide are are participating in organized sports. And so um, about seven million of those kids are going to have some sort of injury every year. So not all of those need a doctor. Some are just a little minor sprain or ache or bump or bruise. What are Uh, you seeing the most of? so especially with organized sports in high school, uh, which, you know, high school's back in, in season and football's going full mm-hmm. steam right now. A lot of knee and ankle injuries. That's probably the most common thing. We certainly see a little bit of everything, though. We see some broken bones, um, you know, some wrist injuries, elbow injuries, but knees uh, and ankles mostly. I want to ask about this because yeah. this surprised me that um, research shows about 70 percent of ACL tears happen in girls. Absolutely. Why? Well, so uh, girls and boys are different, and uh, girls, the way that their musculature is in their legs, sometimes there's a little bit of a, a different balance between the, the front part of the, the leg and the back part, so the quads and the hamstrings. Uh, and so 
and also the shape of their leg. Girls tend to be a little bit more knock-kneed and have a little bit of weakness sometimes in some of the hip muscles and some of the leg muscles that for landing or cutting puts a little bit more stress on the ACL. And so they're just a little more apt and a little more um, predisposed to those injuries. Because teenagers are still developing physically, when they have an injury, is it more serious or less serious for adults. Yeah, I would say I, I would say uh, both, right? So sometimes it's a little less serious because hit, kids have an amazing healing potential. So uh, an adult might not be able to heal up from something that a kid can heal up from. So sometimes kids need surgery and adults don't, but we operate on the kids because we can fix them, put them back together, and they're going to heal things up. Whereas adults, we can kind of baby them through it almost, do some conservative treatment, and they do fine, even with a small little tear that remains, and they're asymptomatic. Are the coaches and parents doing the right thing to keep the kids safe? Uh, I think it depends on the situation. You know, I think, um, you know, the obesity epidemic in, in Mississippi and nationwide is a is a big problem. And so I would tell parents and coaches never hold kids out because you're worried that they're going to get hurt. I think staying active, participating in sports and exercise is way more important. Uh, and the benefits of that way out ri- outweigh the risk of injuries. I also want to ask you about heat-related illness because we just saw the the college student who died Mm -hmm. even when he showed all the signs on the field of what was happening. I think, you know, those those, those happen, right? And especially in Mississippi, when you've got temperatures in the 90s, hundreds, even, even lower temperatures with the humidity that we have, we, you have to stay hydrated. The days of punishing kids for not doing the right thing in practice by keeping them, you know, away from the water, you know, water uh, are just gone. And coaches, for the most part, know that some of these things do happen. They, they're very, very tragic. But I would say that most coaches, trainers, the people that are out there on the field and the practice field understand the importance of hydration. Uh, and it's a rare incident that a death actually occurs. Uh but it does. It, it does. And it's something that we should really have zero tolerance for and work to prevent every single incident. You are open for business now Friday nights we after are. games. Tell us about your clinic. Yeah. So, you know, it's a public service. We have a, a free injury clinic for football players after games on Friday night. Uh, it's from 9 to 11 at the university at the Pavilion in Suite D. Uh, we see kids that are hurt, you know, and I think this it's... This is in Jackson. The it is. It's the Pavilion at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Um we have a physician, usually me. We have a physical therapist. We have free x-ray. Uh, we can do splints, braces, casts, things like that. I think it's a great service, right? It keeps kids out of the ER. Oftentimes, waits in the ER on Friday nights are four to six hours. Yeah, so even if you're far out, if you figure you're going right. to wait six hours in the emergency room and you're three uh, hours away, why not Absolutely. Make you know, and sometimes, you, sometimes we see things that are bad that just need to go to the hospital and need to go to the emergency room, but at least we can quickly give you that assessment and take, you know, take care of that. Is it mostly taping up kids? or It's a, it's a mix, right? We see a lot of knee injuries that are going to end up needing surgery at some point in time, but we can, we can get physical therapy started. We can get them medicine. Uh, we can give some instructions get bracing, crutches, things like that, that just help prevent further injury, but also get the ball rolling to get them back. Do you want people to call in ahead of time saying, I'm on my way and here's what's going on? Yeah, uh, that is good. We, we're more than happy to see anybody, though. Uh, whether they call in or not, we're going to take them. There is a number that I can give you here in just a second. Okay. Though. All right. Um, so sports injuries, that's free to treat. You avoid the emergency room. And again, what you're most likely to see sprains and uh, 
muscle injuries. You mentioned you have a physical therapist, so it's interesting that somebody who comes in hurt can actually go into physical therapy immediately. Absolutely. Sometimes it's just getting getting the knee or the ankle back moving, having some exercises at home that will that will decrease the time of the injury, right? So it'll get them back quicker. So getting things moving sometimes is not what you want. You want to put a cast or a brace or something on and prevent them from moving. And other things, motion is good. Okay. University of Mississippi Medical Center Pavilion Suite D, Friday night starting at 9. That's when the clinic opens if you've got an injured football player on Friday night. Dr. Jim Hurd is Assistant Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks, Dr. Hurd. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's Season Pass. At 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition.